Well, good morning. We are in part six now of a series through the book of Jonah. And uh, Jonah is a really tiny book, sort of in the middle of the Bible, and everybody has a difficult time finding it. So if that's you, it, you, can, you can look in the Bibles in front of you, underneath the seats, it's on page 645. I've gone and saved you the embarrassment of looking for that tiny little book that only occurs on two pages. I want to start out uh, kind of this way as we've been going through the, the series. Specifically to parents. Um, parents, how many times would you estimate that you have asked your kids to say, either asked or told, right, because it's, it's implied when you ask that you're actually giving a command, that you're commanding your kids to say, I'm sorry to someone. I got a million over here. Any other estimates? <laughs> Can anybody top that? Uh, Caleb isn't even two yet, and I would estimate somewhere around 10,000, right? It, it's just, it becomes part of your daily routine. Don't do that. Say you're sorry. Say you're sorry. Go and say you're sorry. Don't, don't, don't do that. Why are you doing that? Say you're sorry, right? Over and over and over again. You, like, you wake up in the middle of the night, sorry, you know? It, <laughs> It's just part of who you become as a parent. Over and over, we're try- and, and what we're trying to do is we're, we're trying to communicate to our kids that their every wish and whim and desire isn't always what's right and good and necessary in every point in time, right? And so if, if my child takes the toy away from another child and pushes him to the ground, I have the responsibility as a parent to say, look, that wasn't yours, and, and you were playing with something that didn't belong to you, and you need to apologize to the other kid. Now, I realize that as children, what, what are the children doing when we ask them to say sorry? Do they really feel like a heartfelt desire within them that they have wronged someone with their actions, and they're just so deeply grieved by what they've done that it just pours out of them? No, no your kids aren't like that? Wow, I must be doing a great job. I'm just kidding. Yeah, thank you. No, it's out of routine, right? They're doing it because they got caught, and they're expecting to to, uh, get out of being caught by saying the magic words, right? So let's fast forward a little bit of time, because there's a shift that happens from when we're kids to when we're adults. Because I think we continue to have the mentality that, that when we're, we've done something wrong, we need to apologize for it. But the reason we need to apologize for it is because we feel guilty and we want to get out of punishment. And so our level of apology, when we actually mean it, actually declines over time. So how many times have you said to someone else, I'm sorry and really meant it in the last month? How many times? Eh, right? Once or twice, maybe. If you're married, maybe that's a little bit more, right? <laughs> here's, here's the thing, though. I, I think that we live in a world, and we participate in this world. It's not just thrust on us, but we participate in a world which tells us you have nothing to be sorry for. Whatever you do, do not apologize for the way that you live. Just be exactly who you are. And if someone doesn't like it, then it's their problem. It's not your problem. 
Anybody ever hear something like this playing on television or radio or in magazines or in, in relationships? We hear it all the time, right? Or if, if you do end up doing something wrong, um, don't, don't be too grieved about it. Just work your hardest to make up for it. And over time, that guilt will start to dissipate and you'll start to feel better about the good work that you've done to make up for the bad, right? We live in a world that works in this kind of way where we teach our children to act in one way that we as parents aren't willing to act ourselves. This is kind of the tension of the world that we live in. Um, and, And one of the, I don't know, I'm just speculating here, but one of the recent maybe possible examples is the divorce that's happening. There's a big divorce in the news. You ever hear about this? Um, b- between some, some pretty famous uh, movie stars. And, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to reach out on a far limb here. You're never going to believe that I actually think this. But probably in their settlement, when their lawyers write up the documents for what's yours and what's mine and how things actually broke down, I'm going to reach out on a limb and say that the documents probably don't start with the very first line being, I'm sorry. Right? Because we're just told over and over again, don't apologize. Don't, don't grovel to, to anyone else. I remember being in class in driver's ed, and, and my teacher was saying at the time, if you get into an accident, there is one thing you should never, ever, 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 ever say after you get out of the car and you meet up with the person that you've had the accident with, what is that phrase? I'm sorry. Why? Because now you're guilty. And it doesn't matter what happened. You are the guilty party, right? And, and so we live life on this tension where we know that we don't live up to the standards that we desire, and yet we have this problem with actually apologizing and saying I'm sorry. This isn't a new problem, by the way. Um, as we saw last week and in weeks past with Jonah, uh, Jonah has done some pretty bad things up until this point in terms of his disobedience to God. How many times has he actually said, I'm sorry? Zero, right? He hasn't actually repented of anything. He hasn't actually changed his disposition towards anything. He's begrudgingly decided to obey God, and that's where we kind of find ourselves this morning. But he hasn't really done anything different in terms of his own heart. And yet, we see that God gives him a second chance, right? And we said last week that the story of Jonah is the story of second chances, and Jonah's story is our story because we as a people are in desperate need of second chances. But there's a way to respond to those second chances which indicates whether or not we actually interpret the second chance the way that God would want us to. And so we're going to see how that works out because the Ninevites, it's their turn for a second chance this week. We're going to catch up with their story, and their response is completely different from Jonah's. Okay, so we're going to start in verse 3 where we left off last time of chapter 3. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. So so Jonah goes uh, to Nineveh smelling like a month-old fish taco, right? Because he just got out of this belly of a fish where he spent the last three days. And he walks into the city and starts to proclaim the message that God had given him to the city by saying, 40 more days 
and you guys are toast. It's all over for you. Everything is sort of going downhill, and your time is numbered. Now, how many words does it say that Jonah used in his big proclamation to Nineveh? If you're counting right, and you're using both hands, the number would be eight. I'm kind of picturing Jonah here walking through the city of Nineveh, uh, kind of half-heartedly saying to people, 40 more days, you guys are done. 40 more days, you guys are done. 40 more days. Like, it either doesn't include what Jonah said, like the rest of what Jonah said, or God is about to use those eight words in a very, very powerful way for the people of Nineveh. Um, Because their response is incredible. But Jonah, he's still kind of half-hearted, is he not? And the reason that we kind of know that is because if you read some of the other prophets in the Old Testament and the way that they gave the message, there is always something else that they give. They always give the bad news with something else. They say, God is not happy with you. Something is going to happen unless. Unless, right? So, so if you change your ways, then whatever I'm saying and predicting God has told me to tell you is going to happen, there's a chance it might not happen. What do we see missing from Jonah's big proclamation? Yeah, there's no alternative, right? There's no unless. There's no, hey, change your act because God may actually show you favor. You want to know why? Jonah wants nothing more than to see what he's proclaiming come to happen for Nineveh. He is still convinced with every fiber that's within him that these people deserve exactly what he's saying is about to happen. And so for Jonah, there is no unless. There is no alternative. There is no uh, get better because things could change for you. He gives no indication because he's probably thinking to himself, just 40 more days and this evil, vile, brutal nation that's so prideful of themselves, they are going to be buried in the dust by God. Nice prophet, huh? It's a great way to start out being a prophet of God. And here's the thing, though. A lot of times in our lives, we can play this same kind of role in the lives of other people. Because I know there are people in your life where deep down the recesses of your mind, you may not admit it to yourself or to your spouse or to your kids, but if that person was just wiped from the face of the earth, you wouldn't lose any sleep at night. Yeah? Yeah, probably both hands, right? (laughs) Kenny's actively working on his list, by the way, so I hope you're not on it. (laughs) We can often have this attitude, though, towards people in our lives that God may actually be sending us to to give a message of mercy, and yet we've interpreted it as I'm going to condemn them on God's behalf. How dare Jonah do that, but how dare we do that also, right? Because it's so easy for us to do it. And yet, in one of the biggest twists in the entire Bible, the people of Nineveh respond in a completely unexpected way, right? How many days does it take to visit Nineveh, as it's already mentioned? Three. How many days has Jonah been proclaiming this message? 
one day, right? It takes three just to walk the thing. Jonah's been talking about what God's about to do in one day, and here's the response. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, all of them, from the greatest to the least. They put on sackcloth. And when the news reached the king of Nineveh, apparently this all happened in one afternoon, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. What an amazing response, right? To a very dull message. And yet they believed God in it. And they changed their entire way of living. Do you want to know the word that accurately describes their reaction? It's repent. That's what it looks like to have repentance. And so we have to do a little bit of work to kind of discover what this word actually means. Because I know for a fact, just given the context, when I say the word repentance, you probably have a few things rolling around in your mind. One is you could probably think of like the guy that shows up at Eagles games with the van and the word repent written on the side and hands out pamphlets to everyone. Right? The crazy one. The one that says, repent or go to hell. And then on the other side of the van, it says, donations taken. Right? I always wondered, like, how many donations is this guy getting? You may also have in your mind, like, the the image of being in a a booth in a very dark place, talking to someone on the other side of a screen, pouring out your life to them, and then giving you absolution over your life story. That's not the picture either. And then the other third of you are probably thinking, crap, I walked into a message on repent. I really could have chosen a different week to be here. And uh, all, my, all I could say is that at least we're not talking about money, right? <laughs> Martin Luther, when, when he, he is a great reformer, he, he's kind of rebelling against the Catholic Church and establishing a new way of, of being the people of God and something called the Reformation, which has impacted the way that we uh, gather and do church today, um, wrote in his very first kind of break from the Catholic Church, he wrote something called the 95 Theses, and he took these 95 individual statements and he tacked them on the door in Wittenberg. It was kind of the church door was sort of a place to post different things in the society. It's kind of like a message board of the day. And he posted it on there to say certain things about how a Christian's life and how the church should operate. And he starts out this proclamation of what Christian life should look like by saying this is the very first statement. He says, for the Christian, all of life is one of repentance. All of life is one of repentance. So in other words, whatever this term is, whatever this word is, it's not something that you do when you come to know Jesus. It's something that defines and, and, and is into your DNA of who you are for the rest of your life. And I think he's on to something because he's, he's 
picking up on what Jesus says when he says, repent and believe the good news and be baptized, right? That's how Jesus introduces his ministry to the world. And so if it's something that should encase and and be a part of every avenue and every area of our lives, if we're going to live under the lordship of Jesus in this life, we need to be kind of clear about what it is that we're talking about, right? And yet this word has a lot of baggage to it. So I want to kind of throw off some of the baggage and and kind of reintroduce to us a way to see uh, this word and how it impacts our lives as believers. And so rather than give you kind of the definition up front, kind of like what we did did last week, I want to look at the story and see what it is that we learn through the story and then kind of tie a bow on it at the end. Um, Because I think there, there are at least four things that we learn from the Ninevites that teach both Jonah and us what this word looks like and how it should play itself out in our lives. Okay, so the first one is this. Repentance begins with the acknowledgement that God is the most offended party. So when we do wrong or when we think wrong or when we desire things that are away from the things that we should desire in life or God designed us to desire, uh, the most offended person, the, the person who, who, who is offended and, and, and done something against more than any other in our lives, is God. And so we need to see repentance not as something that we do to say I'm sorry so that we avoid punishment. We need to see it as something which has offended someone and I need to restore the relationship with that person. So I, I mentioned before that uh, Caleb, you know, we, we talk about be, him being sorry all the time. And, and now uh, when, when he does something wrong, sometimes he'll just say it without any prompting at all, right? And so he'll be feeding the dog like his pretzels as I walk into the room and I'll go, what are you doing? And he'll go, I saw we, right? Does he realize that that he is actually harming the dog by feeding him something that the dog shouldn't be fed? No, of course not, right? He, He realizes that he's doing something. He doesn't realize the wrongness of it. But he knows he got caught doing it, and in my eyes, he shouldn't have been doing it in the first place. And so he wants to make sure that I don't punish him for the wrongdoing. So so there is a way to to view this I'm sorry in two different ways. One is being entirely self-centered, and the other is being entirely God-centered. And there's a difference between the two of those things. Because we, we tend to see repentance as getting our act together in a sufficient way so that we can feel less guilty about our actions and avoid punishment for what we've done. And marriage can kind of work this way, right? If your spouse catches you doing something that you shouldn't do, you maybe not feel so bad so much about the break in the relationship is that you just want things to kind of go back to the way they were before they caught you doing the thing that you weren't supposed to be doing. And so you apologize for that thing, hoping that they overlook it so that there's reconciliation back in the marriage. But the reason that that's not repentance is because in reality, you're more worried about yourself than the fact that your actions grieve someone else. You're more worried about the repercussions of your own life than what it caused in the life of the other person. And this works the same way with God. 
Because when we apologize because we're more worried about ourselves than him, we end up being grieved over our own actions and not grieved over what we've done to him. It's an act of self-preservation and not self-denial and emptying. And so let me ask this. Do you think that the, the Ninevites were more concerned about the punishment which was coming or the fact that they grieved God? I got a little bit of the punishment. Anybody? Grieved God? I think there's probably a little bit of both going on, right? But there's a little bit of a clue that it's not just the punishment because it says that the Ninevites what? They believed God. That word believe is kind of an interesting word because it doesn't just mean they took God's word for it or Jonah's word for it, that punishment was coming. It means that they believed in God. Another way to put that is that they trusted in God. They placed their trust in Him rather than in themselves. And so what were the Ninevites thinking before Jonah showed up that day? In all likelihood. You're the biggest, baddest nation the world has ever seen. You've got no enemies that could possibly touch you. Life is going along pretty well. What are you thinking? We're pretty darn good, right? There's no touch in us. And, and so what does that reveal about who they're trusting in? They're trusting in themselves, right? We're good enough. We're smart enough. We're bad enough. We can take care of ourselves. We can do things our own way. And no other nation, no other people is going to stop us from our triumphant reign. What are they thinking now just one day after Jonah shows up? We're in trouble, right? We're not so hot. We're not as good as we think we are. We're not as strong or as powerful as we think we are. So they're not just believing that God is going to bring punishment. They're starting to believe in the God who's, who's bringing that punishment and the fact that he is actually more powerful and strong than they are. And so repentance means that my motivation for change is not just the avoid, avoidance of punishment. It's that I realize that my actions have offended someone who's actually greater than I am who actually holds more power over my life than I have falsely kind of uh, convinced myself that I am, right? And I realize that I've, I've hurt not just myself, but I've hurt the one who's given me my life. And I have deep sorrow over it. And so here's, here's kind of how it works out. If, if, you really, if you believe that your relationship with God is, is dependent upon kind of minimizing and hiding your own sin, which is what happens when you don't repent, right? Because if, if you aren't honest with God that you've actually offended Him, then the only alternative is I need to convince God that I'm actually living up to some kind of standard. And so rather than show Him and reveal Him my sin, I'm going to pull it back from Him and keep it to myself and try to put up this facade that I'm actually somebody I'm not. Here's what happens, though. You end up living your entire life trying to hold up this charade before God and other people, and you end up completely exhausted. Completely and totally exhausted. Because what are you spending all your time doing? You're spending all your time trying to construct a world that isn't actually true of who you are. 
and convince other people that it's true. And convince God that it's true, who, by the way, actually sees through the facade, does he not? And so you end up completely and totally exhausted because all of life becomes one big exhausting charade. And you end up in further bondage to the thing that actually keeps you from God. It actually ends up ruling over you to a greater degree. And so not only do you fail to experience intimacy with God, but you fail to experience intimacy with anybody else in life too. Because you're trying to keep them at bay so that they don't see the stuff that's actually happening in your heart. And so you end up being incredibly alone and exhausted in the world. So how is repentance different than that? Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10. He says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves what? No regret, right? But worldly sorrow brings death. Why does it bring death? Because you have given yourself over to trying to construct a world that keeps people out, and you end up killing yourself over it. Repentance is completely different because instead of hiding your sin, you confess it to God, and you acknowledge that it's that sin which has separated you from Him. And not only that, but you realize that apart from God, you have absolutely no ability to deal with that sin, and so you ask God to save you from it. And how do you know that you've done that process adequately? You live without regrets. You put down the barriers in your life and you let people in to who you actually are because you know that God sees it and can not only give forgiveness to it, but bring healing for it. And so you live an incredibly open life. And instead of hiding everything or or only revealing it to some people and saying, I'm going to be kind of intimate with who I am with these people, but over here I'm not going to really reveal who I am. You can be open with anybody and honest with anybody. Here's who I am, and I know that Jesus forgives me. I know it's, it's taken care of by the cross, and I can live with the full acknowledgement that I'm not who I claim to be, and that's okay because Christ did it all for me. So I'll play this out even a little bit further. If you're in a life group and you've been existing in that life group with the same people for a very long time, and you feel like you can be open and honest and intimate with those people, but don't introduce any new people into the group because then I've got to shut down. I've I, I got to go back inside and not reveal who I am. It actually shows that you haven't gone through this process of being completely honest with God and with others. Because it, it, if you've truly repented of who you are, it doesn't matter who knows. It doesn't matter who sees. Because you can be honest with everybody. You can be open with anyone. Knowing that God knows fully and forgives you still. And so, go ahead and judge me for it. doesn't make any difference to me because I know that God deals with it and forgives me anyway. All right, the second thing is this. Repentance is a community activity. We, we tend to see this, this word repent as a me and God activity, right? You, you go to a certain room of your house and you light some candles and put on some music and it's just kind of you and God time, right? I, I don't know. Maybe that's not your picture. But, uh, but we see it as kind of this individualistic activity. It's just me and God, me and God, me and God. Don't, don't get in the way, right? Don't come into my world because it's just me and God. 
look, how, look at the way that the people of Nineveh repent, though. It says they declared a fast. Who? All of them, right? From the greatest to the least, they put on sackcloth. So imagine what this must have been like, because there's no hiding the fact that everybody's in this state of mind, right? Because everyone's got sackcloth on, they're walking around with ashes on their heads. Can you imagine what the dinner table would have been like in Nineveh during those 40 days? Everybody kind of comes around the dinner table. You all got a, like an oversized potato sack on. What's for dinner? Nothing, and you're going to like it, right? <laughs> what are we doing today, Mom? We're putting ashes on our head, and we're wearing sackcloth. Deal with it, right? This is light. And so there, there wouldn't be any getting around the fact that that everyone is in this state of mind. But can you imagine what it also does? If you knew that judgment was coming upon you in 40 days and everybody was in the same boat, in the same situation, one of the amazing things that you see with the Ninevites is that they don't start blaming one another, do they? They start blaming themselves. And so you get kind of this amazing picture of people going to one another and saying, look, if I've if I've harmed you in any way, if I've done anything to offend you or, or to break our relationship, anything, w- would you please tell me about it? Because I want to seek your forgiveness over that. You have this kind of one another thing where spouse is going to spouse and asking for forgiveness. And parents are going to their children and saying, you know, we've been entirely too harsh with you guys and we haven't shown you enough love and grace and supported you enough in your life. Neighbor is going to neighbor and saying, look, I'm, I'm really sorry for the way I treated you last week. It, just, it wasn't right and I need to ask your forgiveness. Can you see this happening on a citywide level of people seeking out the forgiveness of one another because there's so much sorrow within the city and everybody's not blaming one another but they're looking at their own hearts. Well, it should be. And we should be the people as God's church who live this kind of lifestyle out every single day of our lives. Because if if we can see this as being true for people who are under condemnation in 40 days, how much more should it be true of those people who have already found forgiveness and grace in God's Son, Christ, on the cross. How much more? Right? We should be people who are entirely, like I said, open with one another, seeking out forgiveness for one another. And when we celebrate communion, that's exactly what we should be doing. Because we are part of the same body. We're part of the same family. And when we come around the table, what we're saying is, I need you to forgive me and I need me to forgive you of anything that's been between us before. And so we, we should be living this lifestyle out together as a function of repentance. It is not, nor was it ever designed to be, just a me and God thing. And so I'll ask you this. Who are the people that you can do this with? Do you have a community of people who you can be open and honest with and who can be open and honest with you in return. Who you can continually and repeatedly, because it's not just a one-time event, repent and find grace in Christ and help one another to do the same in their lives.
Do you have this kind of community? Because this is the way that your life was designed to operate if you are a part of God's family called his church. It is a, a community activity. All right. Repentance also requires urgency. One of the most damaging things that we can do with sin is to ignore it for a while. One of the hardest things we can say when it comes to the things that we've done wrong in our lives is, I'll deal with it later. We see Ninevites not doing this. It says, when the news reached the king, the very top of their society, he rose from his throne, took off his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Maybe in the first time in the history of politics, a politician takes admission for his own actions and and immediately decides to humble himself and then starts to give a decree to the people. This This would be like our president coming on national television and saying, I'm just as guilty as all of you guys over what we've done as a country, and I am publicly apologizing and calling for a 40-day fast. Can you imagine? Unbelievable. He takes immediate action. And so when God convicts you of something that you know is in need of change in your life, the worst thing that you can do is put it off. Because the longer that you put it off, the more time you give yourself to justify that thing which you know needs to change. So if I don't do it, I'll get to it tomorrow. I know it's really bad, but I'll get to it next week. I I, I know I should deal with it, but maybe next month. You know, I've been thinking about it for a little while, and it's not so bad. You know? And so we begin to justify the more time that we have. I would encourage you, if God is bringing something about to your mind that's gripping your heart, then deal with it today. If it involves somebody else in your life, then go to that person today and apologize and say, here's what I've done, I know it's wrong, and I'm sorry for it. All right, the last is this. Repentance leads to a reorientation that begins in our hearts, and results in our actions. And so the king says this. He issues a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man, beast, herd, or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. There is a change of heart that happens with the Ninevites and it results in a change of action, does it not? There is no one in Nineveh that says, you know what, we feel really sorry, and we've all come together and decided that we're going to apologize in our hearts. Nobody says that, right? They say, no, we're going to show it by our actions. We're going to renounce the things that we've been doing, and we're going to demonstrate it through our physical appearance even. There's a change which happens on the inside, that results in change on the outside. It's kind of like a tree, right? If a tree is producing bad fruit, you don't just stick good fruit on it. There's a change that happens from within the tree that produces good fruit. It's a change that happens on the inside that results in your actions too. Um, And so what's the fruit that we're looking for when it comes to repentance? I would say You've got to look to Galatians 5 when it talks about the fruit of the Spirit, right? 
So if we were to look at that and say, the fruit of the Spirit is this, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you were to look at your life and not see any of these things, you need to look at the heart issue for what's not motivating you to have them. And so if I'm not uh, patient in my life, it's going to demonstrate itself in my actions because I'm trusting that, that I need to be impatient or, or in order to make things happen. It's the heart which produces itself in the fruit. All right, so what is repentance? Repentance is this. It's an urgent acknowledgement of an offense towards God that is confessed to God and to others and it results in a change of heart and action. If you lose any piece of this equation, it's something other than repentance, right? It needs to grip our hearts that results in an urgent acknowledgement to God that we've done something. And it needs to be confessed to Him and probably to other people. And it will result in a change of heart and action. And so here's the beautiful thing about it. When repentance comes into our life, even though God is not obligated to forgive us when we repent, He chooses to do so and bring mercy and grace into our lives. He chooses to do so. We see this in the king's uh, acknowledgement. He says, who knows? God may yet relent and have compassion and turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. You, you notice that the king isn't convinced that God may actually relent. He's saying, I, I realize we're doing all this stuff, and yet we may still get destroyed after 40 days. I don't know. I really don't know. And in the same way, God is not required to bring anything other, other than what he's already promised in terms of destruction to Nineveh, correct? He, he's not required to do anything else. And, when, and so when we fully grasp this concept that God is not under any obligation to forgive us, then we begin to realize just how incredible his response to the repentance of the Ninevites actually is and to the repentance in our own lives. So when you're, con- when you're fully convinced that God is not obligated to forgive you, you know what the first thing is to go? Entitlement. No longer do you feel entitled to anything because you realize that God is not in, in any way obligated to forgive you. He, he's, he's not subject to you. It's not like you can say, Well, if I say I'm sorry, God, you have to do this. He doesn't have to do anything, right? He's more powerful than you. He's more powerful than me. And yet some of us, we've become so complacent as Christians because maybe we've been in this thing for a number of years that we've become complacent with the gravity of God's forgiveness in our life. And we think by some way that we are entitled to it kind of works like this. If, if you have a bank account and you suddenly go to that bank account and you realize that you are majorly in the red, you're just incredibly in debt and you had no idea, but suddenly it becomes apparent to you that you have no money and not only that, but you're in debt. 
And then someone comes along and they say, I'm going to give you not just enough to make up the deficit in your account, I'm going to give you a million dollars on top of that. If that person is your father, how do you feel? You feel pretty good, right? But is there not a little bit of, well, he is my dad. You know, if anyone's going to help me out in life, it's got to be my father. And so I kind of feel a little bit entitled to it. Yeah, it's a great gift and all, but it comes from somebody who, you know, is supposed to be someone of importance in my life. How does it change if the person that deposited that money into your account is somebody you do not know? How do you feel now? I I would feel like I have not been entitled to this money, and yet it's been given to me anyway. And so every time I eat a meal based on using the money that I've been given from that account, I'm overwhelmed with gratitude towards this person. That's the reality of what we're talking about here. When God gives to us not just enough to cover our debts, but give us in abundance through his son. Because apart from Jesus, you and I are not his sons and daughters. We are estranged from him. In fact, it says that we were once enemies of the cross. God is not under any obligation, and yet he gives it to us anyway and gives us all the riches we could ever need. And so this is the way that God responds. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Was God obligated? No. Was Nineveh deserving? No. Was there some stipulation to him relenting? No. That's how you know it's God's grace and mercy. That's how you know that God was good in his promise because God always responds to true repentance with incredible mercy. The more you work that reality of God's grace and mercy into your life on a daily basis, the more freely you become to repent of all the things that keep you from Him. And the more free you become from the very presence of those things in your life. So you want to grow? You want to experience change in your life? You want to, to see God work in you and through you and through our church and in this world? Then it begins and it ends with repentance big word, but it means a lot to those who are being saved by him. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you that though you are not obligated to save, and even though we're thinking in terms of the big story, that it was we who walked away from we're looking for the things that only you can provide, but we're looking for them from someone else. That you still intersected our story through your son and you gave us salvation through him. As we think about the Ninevites and how little they deserved and yet how much they responded to you and how great your response was to them, 
I pray, God, that it would be a lesson for, for us, for we who do not deserve, and yet you give graciously in abundance. And I pray that we would not consider ourselves entitled to anything in this life, but we would wake up every day knowing that each day and every moment that we can spend with you, every moment that we can read in, in the Bible and know how just how much we're forgiven and loved and accepted because of what you did on the cross, that it would overwhelm us. We'd live incredible lives of gratitude. And I pray, Father, that that gratitude would overflow from us onto the people that surround us in our lives and that they would wonder what is so different about these people who are just as messed up as I am. They, do, they make mistakes as often as I do, and yet they live with no regrets. I pray that that would be true of us, God. May we be the people that live without regrets, not because there's nothing to regret, but because all the things that we do, we know we receive forgiveness 